May I invite us to turn our Bibles to 2 Peter and chapter 1. 2 Peter and chapter 1. As we carry on with our study concerning the character of godliness. Just to review what we have already covered with regards godliness two ideas were proposed in our hearing one had to do with the irreverent godliness and then the other was reverent godliness and under the reverent godliness we began looking at the three implied ideas with respect to this godliness we noticed in the first place regarding the imperatives of godliness, the imperative of godliness. In the second place, we did learn together with regards the indicative of godliness. We looked at those statements which demanded out of us the need to be godly. Now, we have been looking at the impact of godliness. To what extent? should this godliness reach upon our lives. Now, under the impact, five ideas were proposed to us, and we looked last week, and we continue on even today, looking at the distinguishing features of godliness. Distinguishing features of godliness. Later on in our studies, we'll learn together godliness and how it influences reverent worship. How it impacts reverent worship. In the third place, we learn together with regards godliness and how it ensures believers' vital union with Christ. Fourthly, godliness as a divinely infused awareness of God that permeates every aspect of life. Something we desire to cover together. And then lastly, godliness guards against counterfeit. Basically, counterfeit godliness. So when we began studying together, we looked at the distinguishing features of godliness. And we did pose a question. What is the difference between righteousness, godliness, or holiness, and faith? And we took some time to look at basically righteousness as being the quality of being morally right and justifiable. And under that we said there should be a standard of what is right. If something is morally right... They should be this great being who by nature is right and dictates how what rightness is and that which is justifiable in his sight. We moved on and looked at godliness or holiness as being the state of being holy. It is the condition that comes upon us once we have exercised faith in the Lord's, uh, the, the Lord's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are saved, we receive not only righteousness, but also we receive this element of godliness. Then we moved on to consider godliness as molded by faith. Because we learned together that this godliness does not stand on its own, neither does righteousness stand on its own. There should be a foundation. The foundation to this is faith. Concerning faith, two principles were proposed to us. Faith as the substructure of our spiritual structure. And I remember making mention that those that have studied architect, the height of the building is always determined by the depth of the foundation. Concerning our faith, depending on how well and firmly rooted we are in Christ, 
that will determine how much we grow in righteousness and in godliness. And the reason why this was primary, we said, this substructure points to we being justified by the grace of God. There cannot be righteousness nor godliness without faith being justified by God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the other theological element we considered was the positional sanctification. And by that we meant, in the very sight of God, by virtue of we having the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his holiness in us, we stand as though we have never sinned before. Though we ourselves, every so often, we stumble and fall, but that does not affect the way God looks at, at, at us. Because the Lord knows that we are by nature sinful and are sinners. We strive to live righteously. We strive to walk uprightly. We strive to show the very image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our lives. But for the most part, we do stumble and fall. And we fall greatly. We fall greatly. But positionally, there is no sin in the sight of God. Why? He has forgiven us our previous sins, our present sins, and those sins we ever commit. Amen. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already said on the cross, it is finished. We moved on and considered our progressive sanctification. We are being sanctified day in, day out. And it's within this concept that our goodness is ever molded by faith. So we looked at the substructure and we moved on to look at the faith or rather goodness as the superstructure of our spiritual structure. And I want us to begin from there. We have just been looking at the foundation. We want to look at the building itself. How should the building of godliness look like? What are those materials we need to have in order to build this righteous structure in the very sight of God? And I want to submit to us that godliness is built on nothing else but on faith. It is founded on faith. John Gills, in his commentary, he said, Godliness without which all external worship, all profession of religion is but a vain show. For this is both the evidence of regeneration and of the truth and the power of real godliness. And also the beauty, the comfort, and security of Christian society as well as worship. And without which they cannot be maintained with peace, you know, he says profit and honor. Without godliness, our worship is meaningless. There is no beauty, no comfort, no security in Christianity without godliness. In fact, Hebrews 12, 14, the scripture says, Without godliness or without holiness, no one can see God. No one can see God. The Apostle Peter Emphasizing the need to be as holy as God is holy. He says, he who has called you. He that has justified you. He that has clothed you with that righteousness. He is holy. And therefore you yourselves ought to in the like manner be holy. Why? Because scripture says, for it is written, 
be holy, because I am holy, says the Lord. So, godliness speaks about our walk as Christians with God. Our disposition of mind and heart before God, the way we carry ourselves, the way we devote to those things which God himself has prescribed. Godliness does not occur, nor is it maintained in a vacuum. There should be an aspect of activity that goes on. May I invite us to Ephesians? Ephesians. I believe we read this last week. Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians Chapter 4, we find the Apostle Paul submitting to us something that portrays this very discipline of godliness. He is talking to us about a new man which we are. And this is how godliness is seen and how it unfolds. Verse 17. Therefore this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds being darkened in their minds alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts and they haven't become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. To lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness or godliness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. So that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no wholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath, and shouting, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Godliness is what the Apostle Paul is advocating in that section. Now, some few applications with regards to that. So, godliness that is founded on faith must radically inform and shape our Christian character and our Christian conduct. If our godliness is founded on faith, it must radically inform the apostle Paul is saying, you did not learn Jesus this way. We have been informed by the truth of God. And we are shaped 
by the truth of God. Our Christian conduct as well as our character. Now, consider the nerve of Christian character. If you would, you turn back to Second Peter. Because the Apostle Peter is advocating for a Christian conduct. The character, rather, that which will stand as opposed to the world. The character that is unique. The character which becomes very apparent to those that do not know the Lord. When they look at you, they look at me, the way we carry ourselves. There is a very clear-cut difference. Our character is different. What is character? Character is what defines us, the strength that is in us, and the moral fiber. In other words, we do not fall for whatever comes. What desire is, what would God have me do? In this situation, A.W. Tozer describes character this way as the excellence of moral beings. Excellence carries on. As the excellence of God is in its purity and the excellence of art is in its beauty, so the excellence of man in his character, rather, so is the excellence of the man in his character. Persons of character are noted for their honest ethics and charity. He says such description fits a man of principle or the woman of integrity. And a lack of character is moral deficiency. A lack of character. Now, when we talk about character, what are we looking at? A person's disposition, a person's thought pattern, the person's intentions, the person's desires. As the man thinketh, scripture says, so is he. Now, every individual's character can be evaluated with certain tendencies. Well, when you look at yours and my life, what we always show out, that which people see, is the character of who we are at all times. That's why it's very, very tricky for a believer to live a certain way and then speak a certain way. Because that which we speak should match with how we live. If there is a difference, then our character is called into question. Our profession is called into question. Our representation of this great God who is holy and righteous is called into question. Because if God was holy, he's called us to be holy, and then we are living and pursuing the things that are not holy... But every Lord's Day we are at church. And every prayer meeting we are there. And a minute ago before we walked through those doors, we lived and behaved very different. Our character is called into question. The scripture talks about David as a man of good character. When we have a good character, it's not... That we are being called to live a perfected, an entirely perfected life. I don't don't think that's what God expects of us. Look at David. The scripture says he was a man after God's own heart. What did he do? Fell into sin. Did David knew that what he was doing was sinful? Yes, he did. But then we have another man. I'm trying to compare the two, the two kings, Ahab. At one point he was reckoned as a noble man because he went and fought with the Israelites against the army 
the invaders. And he died in battle. And the word of nobility was used in reference to Ahab. But was he a man of character? He was not. The difference there is, is this character that is in David was infused in him by the workings of God's grace upon his life. He knew what was wrong. He was able to go back to God and plead for mercy and forgiveness. Ahab? No, he never did. He never did. He would have died and good words were used upon him. But he was not a man of character. Many other people in the Bible are, are spoken of as having noble characters like Ruth, like Job, and many others. They were distinguished individuals because of their character. But look at the nerve of Christian character as he is refined by trials for the purpose of strengthening our faith. There is a common saying that if you want to know someone's character, let them be faced with trials. That's where you will see whether their minds are stayed in God, I mean on God, or the Lord God is used as a facade to just identify with others who've caught upon the name of the Lord. But when hardships come, reality dawns. There should be consistency in our character, brethren. Just like when you cut a lemon and you squeeze, it's lemon juice. It will not come out from that fruit, orange juice. It's lemon, tart in taste. You know, it causes you to have goosebumps as you leak on it, because that's just the nature of the lemon. But we as Christians, when trials come, it is that which the Lord uses to refine us and cause our character be well shaped by his grace. We also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5. In 1 Chronicles and chapter 29 and verse 17, the words are ascribed to God. You test the heart and are pleased with integrity. In other words, the Lord tests the hearts of his people and is pleased because he finds integrity, he finds character in them. They are still remaining true to who they are. In Psalm 15 and verse 1 through 2, it says, O Lord, who may abide in your tents, who may dwell in your holy hill? And he says, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth. In his heart. Such a man would dwell. In the holy hill. Such a man. Question is how do we develop this godly character? Because it's within our powers. God in his mercy has saved us. We are in that frame of. We being sanctified. It comes down to this. Firstly, by controlling our thoughts. What we think about. As the man thinketh, so is he. 
Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks. I remember some time back, back in my home country, I took a car to a mechanic just to work on it. And this man could not help it because his heart was rotten. Every statement he made was punctuated with something of profanity. And after about five, ten minutes, I had to raise my voice. Don't do that. And then the friend says, do you know that this man is the pastor? And immediately, he began citing John 3 verse 16. I'm like, really? (laughs) Not too long ago, your, your mouth was just as foul. Now you want to talk about the scriptures. Controlling our thoughts. Finally, brethren, Paul says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worth of praise, think of these things. So he's basically saying, use your sound judgment. Is, is the thing I'm about to indulge in, the thing I'm about to say, is it of praise worthy? Can I say this thing when I stand before the majesty of the king on high? Or even bringing it close to home. The thing I'm saying, can I say them in the presence of my wife, of my children, or the fellow brother from church. The brother may not be there, but God is there by controlling what we think, but also by practicing Christian virtues, by practicing Christian virtues. And this is what we have been studying together, brethren. Look at verse verse 8 through verse 9 of our text. The Apostle Peter says, For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, He says, that one is blind and being nearsighted and having forgotten the purification from his former sins. And what are these virtues? Look at verse 5. Because we know from verse 3 that God by his grace has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's given them to us. Verse 5. Now therefore, rather, I'm sorry, now for this very reason also, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. Verse 8, if these things are yours. The Apostle Paul, Peter rather, was not going to be policing the brethren in diaspora. Trying to see, are you living up to your claims? The only thing he could do was appeal to their consciences. These things are given to you. Practice them. But also, in the third place, By guarding our hearts. By guarding our hearts. Scripture says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Don't be slackening when you are watching over your heart. When you are protecting your heart from all things that might defile your heart. Why? He says, for from it springs, or flows rather the springs of life. Matthew 15, 8 through 20. 
He says, but the things that proceed out of mouth come from your heart. Just like how a bad tree can't give fruit to a good fruit. So is the disposition of our heart give birth to the fruit that which is seen before man. Thirdly, I mean fourthly, by keeping good company. When I came to this point, I was thinking that maybe it might apply a lot to the young people. But I realized, no, this, this is a universal principle. It's a universal principle. Why is it universal? The way the Lord God has created us, we are a people that are very interpersonal. We are people that are relational by nature. We are a people that desire to love and be loved back. We want to be appreciated. That's just the way we are. The reason why we end up falling into wrong hands is if we do not keep up with good company. There is always an availability of the bad company. From work, from school, riding along in public transport, anywhere you go, there is bad company round about us. But look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That might apply in our thinking. Maybe it's just the young people because they are still navigating their way in life. But even big people. Keeping bad company is a very subtle exercise. The thing that used to make you stumble can be the thing that you begin now to trivialize. It's not a big deal. It's every now and then this friend of mine uses the name of the Lord in vain. And I know that he should not be doing this, but I'll try to minister to him and carry on proclaiming the gospel to him. And then in the end, the pain you used to feel in your heart when the name of the Lord is used in vain, that just become all seared. But company. I believe that's why the scriptures speak about men and women of character as being good examples to others, to others to follow. That these godly men with their reputation becomes very apparent and quite evident to others. The young people, the young women in Titus too, they have older women to look to. The young men have older men to look to. We are keeping up with good company. And there is no safer place to be than in the house of God. Than in the house of God. Let me speak to the young people. Do we have the marriable age in here? No, I think there isn't. But I will say it nonetheless. There are times temptation comes for those that are at this age in life where they need to find a spouse. And if our church as small as it is, the prospective spouse is not there, what happens? You visit one or two conferences, it doesn't seem to be working out. Well, there's a bowling alley somewhere. You play a bit of bowling and someone seems to be very close to you. You begin to wonder, well, the scripture says I should not unequally yoke with a non-believer. But my intentions are clear. I just want to proclaim Jesus to her or to him. At the end of the day, there's no longer proclaiming of Jesus to her or to him. It's compromise. This is how I look at Christianity, brethren. It takes long to build character as a Christian. It takes, if you just put 
your foot on that slippery slope once. That's it. The brethren would forgive you, pray for you, but the world that knew you as a Christian, a man of character, they always have a point of reference. Christianity is but hypocrisy. And it's because we fail to live by our profession. So godliness should arouse in us that God-fearing all and the desire to please God with our consciences at all times. But there's also godliness that touches the nerve of Christian conduct. Christian conduct. Now this is the aspect of no longer just within but it is focused on behavior. Conduct is a mode of standard of personal behavior motivated by moral principles. Basically, your character informs your conduct. The way oneself acts, the way oneself carries himself in the manner of caring for your, your life, directing your paths, guarding, keeping, regulating what we do. Ultimately, conduct is very much connected with our stewardship. Of who we are. One's behavior cannot be separated from one's character. And there is a reason for this. Because if our character is one that is invested in God our behavior should be the one that portrays the very character of God. This is what Solomon said. Integrity of the upright guides them. In other words, the character of the upright guides them. In their conduct, that very character does so. A very good example is Daniel in Daniel and chapter 1 and verse 8. Daniel had resolved not to defile himself. The Apostle Paul may counter Daniel's argument that the foods were Sacrifice to idols. But Paul would say we know that yeah, though idols are there, there is but one God. But Daniel had resolved not to defile himself. He chose to honor God. Be it in what he ate and how he conducted himself. Now we need to understand, brethren, that the way our character is has a bearing on the conduct of our lives. And the way we conduct ourselves can either cause us to be accepted or rejected. So there is a price to pay to maintain such a godly character by the way we conduct ourselves. We need not to divorce our minds from this. Peter is writing to the believers running for their lives on the account of their faith. Their character and their conduct was always on display. How did they live? How did they carry themselves? Matthew 5, 16. 
talks about the light. Let your light shine. Do not constrain that light. Let your light shine before men. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The flip side of that. If you and I want to be in the safer ground. Where we hide our character as well as our conduct as Christians. What we are doing is we are not letting our light to shine. So that men can see the glory of God. His work of grace upon our lives. Glorifying God the Father may either come in them kneeling their knee before the majesty of the king or in persecuting you. Glorify God our Father who is in heaven. Well, the other thing that we can learn concerning this is found in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 11, uh, 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for all others. It's all about doing and doing. What about Peter? Speaking to the same brethren we are reading about. Maybe let's turn there. First Peter. If you, you will, brother, uh, brethren. First Peter in chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. And reading from verse 12. Okay, verse 11 maybe. And I'll end my reading in verse 13. There is so much here. Um, but verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage woe against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may become of your good works. Sorry, they may because of your good works as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13 be subject for the sake of the Lord to every man, every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. If we took time to just think about that statement, you are in the midst of the Gentiles. You are as exiles, as sojourners, your preoccupation in your service to God is to maintain that excellent conduct among the Gentiles. So that even though they do slander you or call you names and regard you as evildoers, in other words, what they accuse you of will not stick on you. Because that's not who you are. Again, it's within the powers of these believers to maintain their behavior before the watching world. The motivation is the glory of God. The glory of God. And he goes on to talk about their submission to the human institutions and the authorities of the king. The same authority that is persecuting them. Be submissive to them. Because we are but exiles. This is not home. This is not home. 
Look at chapter 4, the same First Peter. First Peter and chapter 4. Reading from verse 14. This is a section where Paul is, or rather Peter is calling the believers to share in the suffering of Christ. And he says in verse 13, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. But look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but he is to glorify God in this name. Your conduct matters. The Apostle Peter, his desire, as he is the desire of the Lord God over his people, whom he has saved by his grace, by the grace, I mean by the work of Christ. Our conduct, which affirms that we have the righteousness and holiness of God in us, should not be hidden but should be seen, should be seen. No one lights up a lamp and put it under the bush. Rather, it's placed on a pedestal or the table so that all can see the light and glorify God. So, godliness with regards to our conduct, it's basically Practical piety. It's practical piety. Your desire is not to hide who you are. Our desire is to live out who we are. It be in our knowledge, should be for the edification of the church. When we suffer afflictions, should be for the glory of God, but also the edification of others. In 2 Corinthians 1, we are told that we have this great God of all comfort, who comforts us through all hardships. And he causes us to have that experience of comfort so that we can comfort others. What are we as believers? We are but instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. And he will use us as he sees fit. But in all of these things, brethren, we should not forget to have dependence, submission, obedience to God. Because it should be for the glory of this great God. So godliness... Is correct behavior and genuine Christian faith. First in the heart, but also in the visible expression according to the standards of God's word. It takes self-control, continual work, and commitment day by day as we strive to please God despite our sinful and weaknesses. Our sinfulness, rather, and weaknesses. I'll end with this. Ultimately, the reason for godliness is for the glory of God. And it is for our good. It should not be for pride. Godliness should encourage humility because we have the character of the other, and that is God. This is not ours. It's given to us. 
We are basically stewards of this righteousness, of this godliness. It was not birthed from within us. Proverbs 10 and verse 9 says, He who walks in integrity walks securely. He who walks in integrity walks securely. And again, we've just dealt with the very first element. The impact of godliness and those were but the few distinguishing features concerning godliness. May God in his grace grant sufficient grace to us to be and live godly in our character and in our conducts. May the good Lord add a blessing the preaching of his word. Shall we pray together? Father, we are so grateful for your faithfulness and for causing us to have this blessed hope that is in Christ, but also for clothing us with the righteousness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for causing us to realize that we have your righteousness, your holiness, based upon the gift of faith. And Lord, you do expect us to be a people that are consistent in our identity as the children of God Most High. Help us, Father, in our character that we will always have Christ at the center of it all. In our conducts, in our behaviors, Lord, we do pray that all things we do and say that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be seen. We do ask for forgiveness. We know that, Lord, on many fronts, we have erred. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not lived up to that character of God, nor conduct ourselves before the watching world in the manner that would glorify your name. Father, now that we know and that you've reminded us of these things, may you cause our consciences not only be awakened to reality, but our lives be shaped by this very truth. Help us, Lord, that as each, each day comes, that we strive as much as we can, relying on God the Holy Spirit to be as righteous, as holy, and as godly. We ask all these things in your Son's holy and precious name. First Timothy 6.15 through 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen.